Good morning. Uh, we're looking at Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 to 7. I would very much encourage you to have that open in front of you. Um, if you haven't got a device or a means of doing that, there are Bibles at the back, or there are the Isaiah journals, um, which has the passage printed out in it, um, so you can have a look at it, because that really is the most important thing we are going to look at. Um, not what I say, but what it says, what this passage says. Um, so let's pray, shall we, as we come to think about God's word together. God in heaven, uh, we praise you for your son, who is that lamb who was slain, who is worthy of all things, all the praise and adoration of our hearts, all of the time, shining like the sun in all of its brilliance as we have just sung, and yet we know that we can so often be blind and dull and hardened, and we pray that in your mercy you would give us a sight of the Lord Jesus now. As we look at your word, please would you show us him more clearly that we might turn to him and trust him more fully um, and live in adoration of him all of our days. Amen. Um, I wonder if you are complacent. Um, complacent. What is it to be complacent? To be complacent is to think, it's have that kind of sense of you don't have to bother with something. It will all be okay. You just don't need to try. And we can be complacent about all kinds of things. Um, I make bread. You may have heard me say that. Um, sometimes I make sourdough bread. And, um, and I, I could, there are times when I've been complacent about my sourdough. I haven't given it the attention that it needs, and it has resulted in bad bread. Tragedy. Um, but it's exam season. Um, some people have exams at the moment. And complacency in exams is that feeling. It's all going to be okay without any effort. Or we talk about it in sports teams, don't we? A sports team can grow complacent when it assumes it will win without working at it. And we can be complacent about all kinds of things, and some of those things matter, and some don't really matter. Uh, but this morning, we're going to think about a type of complacency that, well, that is eternally toxic. Uh, and I don't think anybody tries to be complacent. That kind of defeat the point, wouldn't it? Um, uh, so, Somebody says, complacency falls softly, even pleasantly, on a sleeping soul. Now, the kind of complacency we are going to think about um, today is the kind of complacency that can sit happily side by side with busyness in life. Uh, sometimes it's the busyness that is the problem. Uh, somebody said, few of us think of ourselves as complacent. Life is full and hard and often overwhelming but underneath, there's an eerie stillness. Not the stillness of peace and security and joy, but of a spiritual stagnancy. I wonder if we are lulled, dulled into spiritual complacency where we are not bothered, we're not trying when it comes to the condition of our souls. So we're going to think about um, together as we look at this passage. And, and, and yet as we think about that, I wonder how, how we should talk to the complacent. How, how do you speak to a complacent person? Now, I found a TED Talk on complacency. It was 13 minutes long, which was too much for me to look at. Um, so so I, I flicked through. I wanted to find what was the answer to complacency. I got a bit bored. But at any point, at, at no point, did the guy pull out a guitar and start to sing. And that was kind of what I was waiting for. You see, in Isaiah chapter 5, this prophet is speaking to a complacent people by singing them a love song. Let's just remember our bearings in Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1 is full of appeal. Uh, God Almighty reaches out in mercy to a people, his people who are ruining themselves with their sin. 
Now that kind of sets the tone for the whole of what follows in Isaiah. But then Isaiah chapter 2 begins with a heading. The next heading comes at the beginning of chapter 13. So we can say chapters 2 to 12 is a section in Isaiah. And in the middle comes chapter 6. Chapter 6 is hugely important. Tells of Isaiah's most personal encounter with God. And it divides up this section. But the beginning of chapter 6 gives us a, a kind of historical marker Um, It tells us that it is the year King Uzziah died. Uh, And after that, uh, we're swapping microphones. It's a bit of a a kind of um, weekly routine, isn't it? (laughs) Good, right. Uh, So... um, where are we? Isaiah 6 divides up the section 2 to 12. After that, um, we, hear, we hear about the reign of Ahaz, who comes after Uzziah. Um, and, and, and so we can think of chapter 7 to 12 as having behind it the tumultuous reign of Ahaz, a, a time when the nation is on its knees, it is, um, it, it is under attack, and, and all that time they're trying to find a solution to their problems that doesn't include trusting the Lord. But that comes in chapter 7 to 12. But now... In this little first part, chapters 2 to 5, it's, it's in this, the end of the, the reign of Uzziah, a stable reign. He was king for 52 years, uh, and the nation enjoyed prosperity and success and comfort, but spiritually grew horribly complacent. Now, so that's where chapter 5 is. It, is. it is concluding this message to a society that has lulled itself into massive spiritual danger. How then does Isaiah speak to the complacent? You see verse 1? He sings a love song. Don't know how you feel about love songs. And my family will tell you that I quite often get stuck on certain songs. Um, And for a time, I was pretty hooked on the song, A Sky Full of Stars. You know that? Uh, Not the Coldplay version. Not just that. The version that comes in Sing 2. That's the one I really like. Um, Now, it is a romantic love song. I know that because I googled it. Uh, which tells me it is about appreciating someone romantically and investing oneself in that person. However, if you watch Sing 2, when the song is sung, it comes in a story, and it gives it a different meaning. Um, It's not a romantic meaning in Sing 2. I think it is still a love song, but a different kind of love. And there's something of that happening in Isaiah 5. Uh, Follow with me. Verse 1, Isaiah the prophet says, I will sing so hard to get the sense of this across because the the way he expresses this, he is busting to sing. He is bursting to sing. He's so eager to sing this song for the one I love. Uh, Literally, I want to sing for the one I I love a song of my love. And the repetition is awkward, but you get the idea. And the subject of his song is his beloved's vineyard. Now, if you If you read the book of Song of Songs in the Bible, which is the Bible's book of passionate romantic love, then you will see what putting vineyards into songs would have meant for Isaiah's hearers. Now, now, in this song, Isaiah isn't one of the romantic parties. He's kind of playing the part of the kind of best man, maybe. He's kind of singing about his dear friend. But as all this expectation loaded as he bursts out in song... And yet, as the song develops, it takes a sour turn. Look how he begins. My loved one 
had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. This vineyard is the object of the owner's intense and meticulous care. Uh, he, he puts this vineyard in the most ideal of conditions. It's on a hillside where it can get all of the sun, but it is a fertile hillside. The ground is bursting with life. It's, it's the kind of place where everything is lush and it grows well and it grows strong. And then, and then he dug it up and cleared it of stones. He worked hard to make the place ready. Didn't cut any corners. The ground was all ready. And then when it was ready, he planted it with the choicest vines. He didn't kind of get some seed on the cheap, not sure what it would do. No, he carefully selected something that has a proven record. He goes for the very best. That's what he plants. And then after that, he built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. A tower for protection, the wine press ready for processing the harvest. And then the song builds up this picture and those those who heard it would, would be able to imagine it now this is a a, a picture of a vineyard in in the area an ancient watchtower over it and they they the, the people would know all about it they would know about the hard work that went into it they would know about the kind of vines that were planted they would know this vineyard has everything all that is left is to wait for the crop it says that then he looked or he waited that there'd be an interval between the planting of the vine and the first grapes of about two years but he waits, full of expectation. But when the crop came, end of verse 2, it yielded only bad fruit. Literally, stink fruit. That's what it is. This best of vines produces something that is foul and useless. And this is where the song goes sour. Now, these hearers, as they hear this, they would know all about that hard work and the waiting. And when they hear about the stink fruit, they would be filled with shock and disgust. Then in verse 3, a new singer takes up the song. Uh, Isaiah has been singing about the vineyard of the one he loves, but now the one he loves, the vineyard owner, starts to sing in verse 3. And he sings to the crowds of those who are listening, you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah. And he calls them to make an assessment of the situation. Judge between me and my vineyard. Where is the fault to be found? Maybe verse 4 takes on a minor key. As he sings it with deep sorrow. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? He loved this vineyard. It's his prize project. He spared no expense. He cut no corners. He, every drop of sweat as he worked was a labor of love. And the people he sings to knew about vineyards. None of the people hearing this song would have gone, nah, I wouldn't do it like that. Nah, no, you missed this bit. None of them would be thinking that. They'd all be thinking, oh, I wish I could prepare a vineyard as well as this one. And so he asks, when I look for good grapes... Why did it yield only bad, only stink fruit? It's a rhetorical question. There's no real answer to give. So in verse 5, the vineyard owner says, Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. And it's the same as verse 1. It's hard to convey the intensity. He is so eager that they know what will happen to the vineyard. At this point, all the crowd are on board. The crowd share his sorrow. They share his frustration. They will nod in agreement as he describes what he will do. I will take away the hedge and it will be destroyed. And you hear the ripples around the crowd. Yes, 
Yes, that's right. Get rid of the hedge. It doesn't need to be protected anymore. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. Yes, say the crowd. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. And the crowd are nodding. Yeah, that is best. That is best. This vineyard is so useless. It's not worth any more effort or time. Let it be ruined and forgotten. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Yes, say the crowd. Don't let it have any good. It deserves nothing. And then the music suddenly cuts. And the crowd falls silent. And Isaiah jumps in with the explanation of the song, revealing who it is about in verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. He drops his mic and he walks off the stage. That's it. The Lord Almighty planted a nation of his delight and he looked for fruit. He looked for justice and righteousness. But all that was being produced was this stink fruit, bloodshed and cries of distress. And Isaiah's message to the people of Jerusalem is, you are that vineyard. That's how Isaiah speaks to the complacent. That's how he gets around their defenses. Surely the reason is he wants to wake them up. Wants to shake them out of their complacency. Well, well, let's just think about that. How does this song do that? How do these different parts of of this song um, dismantle their complacency? I want us to think about three ways that the song challenges their complacency and might do some work on ours as well as we think about it here's the first one the complacent minimize the lord's goodness and grace the people of jerusalem they've lost sight of how good god is one commentator says that this song is a living picture of the goodness of god Verse 7, it says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And this song begins with that delight. It it, it describes how the Lord deals with his people. The way he deals with his people, he brings them out of nothing and lavishes goodness on them. This vineyard has the best of everything it needs. Why does it have it? Because the Lord loves it. It's his special project. It's his delight. It's an astonishing thing to say, isn't it? These people are the delight of God. Where the the Lord God has chosen to put his happiness. To really dig into that, I think we must see that this vineyard did not need to be. The vineyard owner did not need to make the vineyard. He didn't make it out of a great need. He made the vineyard out of great delight. You see, the nation of Israel hadn't been formed because it was needed. It it came out of nothing. And when it was formed, God said to them in Deuteronomy 7, it's not because you were great or or did some wonderful things. Deuteronomy 9, it's not because you you were really good and and better than everybody else. No, 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 the reason the Lord chose them, Deuteronomy 7, says he chose them because he loved them and he loved them because he loved them. That's great, isn't it? He loved them. Because he loved them, and because he loved them, he lavished every provision on them. He spared nothing. Didn't cut any corners, gave them everything they could need. They didn't need to exist, but God loved them and wanted them to exist. 
Well, the story of the nation of Israel reflects in miniature the story of all creation. Now, even this vineyard song, as it tells the construction of the vineyard, it tells it in six stages. That's interesting, isn't it? Go back to the creation account in Genesis 1, the six days. Those first three days are all about preparing places. And then the second three days are all about filling up those places. It's exactly what we see in this vineyard. Three stages of preparing the places, three stages of filling the places. And when God created people in Eden, he lavished goodness and provision on them. He spared nothing. They didn't need to be there. They didn't need to exist. But God loved them and wanted them to exist. Acts 17 reminds us that God doesn't need anything. The creation of the world never needed to happen. Do we get that? Do we get that? The world exists not from necessity but just from the overflow of God's goodness. Everything in creation is a gift of God's love. As C.S. Lewis says, God who needs nothing loves into existence holy superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. We are stunningly precious, but preciously unnecessary. Stunningly precious, preciously unnecessary. And this vineyard song shows The wonder of that, it describes the wonder of it, that everything we have is is given. That the whole world is built upon a great principle of grace, of gift. And and our place in the world is to receive the gift. Our place in the world is to be loved. And, And as we are loved, we return thanks and we live in gratitude and wonder. Wonder that every breath is given, every moment is given, every goodness is given. But the complacent in Jerusalem had lost sight of it. Maybe we do. Lose sight that all all we have is given out of the Lord's goodness and grace. You know, the the real irony is is that for these people, they, they depend on the Lord even for their rebellion. A guy called Van Til says this, he said, I saw a little girl one day on a train sitting on the lap of her daddy, slapping him in the face. If the daddy had not held her on his lap, she would not have been able to slap him. Not true. This vine can only produce stink fruit because it was planted by the farmer. It's only possible for us to sin against God because he upholds our existence every moment. And we slap God in the face with our sin while he holds us on his lap. That's the massive goodness of God. He's so good. And to grasp that just changes everything, doesn't it? No drop of rain, no blade of grass can ever look the same. But to lose sight of it shrinks the world and drains the color. Now these spiritually complacent in Jerusalem drifted to think that they had to make it by themselves. They had to push themselves ahead, push themselves over others, otherwise they would miss out. They'd forgotten that God was a God of goodness, forgotten that God delighted in them, so they closed their hearts to him and filled them up with other things. What about us? Might we be dulled into spiritual complacency because we Because we really, actually deep down, we believe God is miserly and his grace is small. 
Now, if we ever think we know enough of God's goodness, I assure you, you have barely even begun. The complacent minimize God's goodness and grace. That's the first thing. The second thing, uh, the complacent think they have an excuse for sin. Uh, Complacency, by definition, is when you think everything's okay, when it's not okay. And the people in Jerusalem, they don't think their sin is a problem. Why would they not think it was a problem? Uh, it, It could be they didn't think their sin was a problem because they didn't think it was that bad. One of the interesting things in the song is how it describes sin. Now, the Lord waited for the good grapes, waited for righteousness and justice, and yet instead the vine only produced stink fruit. Now, that image helps to understand that sin is a distortion of the good. In fact, in, in, in verse 7, when it says he looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness but heard cries of distress, in Isaiah's language, all those words sound the same, just with slight changes. The words themselves illustrate that sin is a distortion of the good. You see, this vineyard had not been planted with good and bad vines. See which one's going to win. There was only good in this vineyard. So where does the bad come from? It only comes by a corruption of the good. It's not by something else. When God made the world, God didn't make the world mixed up with good and evil to see which one was going to win. Badness was never part of the plan. It's not original. Badness is always parasitic. And so this stink fruit is so appalling because it grows on the choice vine. Now, if, if stink fruit grows on a stink fruit plant, that's not remarkable. But the horror of sin is that people do it. And people, all of us, bear a weight of, of dignity and significance before God like nothing else. Now, if King Charles um, moves out of Buckingham Palace or wherever he lives in takes off his royal robes and goes into the sewers under London and lives with the rats, lives like the rats, eats what the rats eat, does what the rats do, that we would be appalled by it, wouldn't we? If the rats do that, we're not appalled because they're rats. That's what rats do. But when people sin, when anybody sins, it's cosmically appalling because we were not made for that. Now, like this vine, this choicest of vines, lavished with goodness and love, Stink fruit is the opposite of what it was intended for, contrary to every purpose it existed for. Now, whenever we sin, we we do something that cuts against our our design, our purpose, that it cuts against our very being. In creation, we are kings and queens, and in sin, we're behaving like rats, as as though that were completely natural. Now, the people were complacent because they didn't get how appalling it was for them to sin. Uh, Jesus, he riffs off this vineyard song when he tells the parable of the vineyard. You can read it in Mark 12. He he tells this parable and he begins by saying, a man planted a vineyard, he put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. See the similarities between this? But, But then he uses his parable to really focus where all sin lands. He he tells about tenants in the vineyard. He's focusing on the religious leaders, those responsible for the care of the people, for the care of the vineyard. And and when the owner sends his servants, the tenants attack them. That's the the stink fruit equivalent, the the bloodshed and the outcry. But the climax in Jesus' parable comes when the owner sends his son. 
And, and the tenants see him coming and they say, let's kill him. And then the vineyard will be ours. It's crazy talk, isn't it? Crazy talk. When they kill the son, the owner doesn't say, okay, have the vineyard. No, he doesn't. He says, you will have justice. Uh, he brings the full weight of justice against them and they lose everything. The people in, in Isaiah's time were complacent because they didn't get how appalling it was for them to sin. But by the time of Jesus, the religious leaders didn't get how appalling it was for them to murder the Son of God. What then for us? Now, our complacency about sin is brought to sharpest focus when we're confronted with Jesus. And we must not kid ourselves that we are so different from those tenants who plotted to kill the son. We're not that di- we should not think we're different just because we haven't got the opportunity to kill him in the flesh. Now, we kill him repeatedly every day, don't we? Every denial, every shutting him out, every preferring of something forbidden, every harm and hatred of those around us, every mistreatment of the least is a mistreatment of him. We don't feel the horror of it because we probably don't think of as much as Jesus as we, as we think we claim. Now, they excuse their sin because they didn't think, um, they didn't get how bad it was. But, you know, I think that there's another way that they could have excused their sin. See verse 4. In verse 4, they're asked to assess the vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it, says the owner? It's a question which anticipates excuses. The, the excuses that say this stink fruit was produced because of something deficient in the vineyard. that The ground wasn't prepared well enough. It wasn't watered. It wasn't tended. It wasn't looked after. That's why the stink fruit came. That's familiar territory for us, isn't it? That we excuse our sin because of our circumstances. That we treat people like objects. We trample on them, neglect their needs. We lose our temper. We lose our patience. And, and briefly, we, we have that pang of guilt, but we quickly squash it away because we tell ourselves, ah, but there were other things going on that made me sin. I was tired. I was under pressure. Um, or or, or they, they did something. I wouldn't have sinned if they hadn't have done it, but they, it's their fault, really. They drew it out of me. We do it for ourselves, but I think we do it for one another, don't we? When, when somebody speaks to us about what they did that was wrong, we, we give them excuses, don't we? We say, oh, I'm sure you didn't mean it. You were probably distracted. Oh, well, I guess that other person had it coming, really, didn't they? Or even we just say, well, look, you know, I sin, you sin, we all sin. Let's not be too bothered. We settle for it, don't we? We just, it's another excuse. But the question in verse 4 is very sharp. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? Because every excuse for sin at its root is an accusation against God. It's saying, God, you didn't give enough. That's why there is stink fruit. Oh, when King David stole another man's wife and then arranged for the murder of that man, the prophet Nathan came to him. And the prophet Nathan told him a story about an injustice. And it got David so angry about the, the injustice in the story until the prophet said, you are that man. Just like this vineyard song says, you are that vineyard. 
But, but then the Lord says to David, he says, David, I gave you so much. And he says, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. David, if you lacked, why didn't you ask? I've lavished goodness on you. I just want to give to you. Why do you think you need to go and take something else? Well, doesn't that question of verse 4 infinitely deepen for those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? When we ask, what more could God have done for us? What more? Romans 8 says he didn't even spare his own son, but graciously gave him for us the son of his eternal love. He was willing to give into the cruelty of Calvary and to rescue us into his never-ending love. We heard it in Ephesians 1, didn't we? We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We have the blessings of adoption and, and redemption and forgiveness and a future and a home and a family. And He's given us his own spirit. The, the power of the, of the living almighty God comes and resides in us by his spirit to purify us, to... to, to to make us like Jesus, freeing us from the power of sin and producing that fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. He's given us one another. We could go on, couldn't we? What, what more could he give? Now when we think we have an excuse for sin, let's hear the love of God ask us, what did you lack? Why didn't you ask? What more could I have done for you? Now, the complacent think they have an excuse for sin. And this song aims to shake the complacent. And I think the third thing we see in the song is that the complacent are not concerned about God's judgment. Now in verse 5, why is the Lord so insistent uh, that those who listen hear what will happen to the vineyard? He's so insistent that they hear because they are the vineyard and it will happen to them. Now, the rest of Isaiah 5 will explore the kind of stink fruit that grows in Jerusalem and the destruction the Lord will bring. The vineyard wasn't made with a mixture of good and evil. Stink fruit is not the design and it will not be part of the future. So the farmer will take away the support and without the support the whole will go to ruin. Verse 6, he says, I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. Briars and thorns, it's an echo again from Genesis 3. But echo again from where in Eden there was a garden lovingly prepared, an environment with ideal conditions for righteousness, but the humanity who lived in the garden produced the opposite. And then the curse resulting from Adam's sin brought thorns and thistles to the ground. Now the vineyard produces stink fruit. That is, what well, one commentator says this. It says, a total work of grace has been lavished on them and yet they remain as if grace had never touched them. A total work of grace has been lavished on them and yet they remain as if grace had never touched them. And so that's what God gives them. He makes them as though grace had never touched them. Removes the hedge, breaks down the wall, stops providing, commands the rain to stay away. God is giving them over to a graceless, godless existence, which is what they want. It's what's described in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 says that God's anger against sin is seen today in that God lets people go. He lifts off the restraints 
So people get what they want. Because people in their sin, what they want is they don't want God to be involved. It's the very worst thing that can happen. But as people strain, God says, okay, you can have what you want. And we see it today when God doesn't restrain the chaotic consequences of sin in the world. And we see havoc and harm. Romans 1 says it is a foretaste of what is to come if people don't repent. It is a warning to bring us to our senses. Now Jesus says in Matthew 7, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And there are so many who think they are Christians, but they are not. They talk the talk, but don't walk the walk. That's why spiritual complacency is eternally toxic. But the complacent miss all of that. The the, the complacent assume that talk about punishment is exaggerated. That the the complacent miss that the only reason that we are not immediately destroyed for our rebellion is because God is patiently giving us time to repent. And he is very patient, but not forever. Now, when the vineyard song is heard in Jerusalem, the people will all agree that the destruction of the vineyard is what is best and right. Now, we might not be so familiar with vineyards. Now, maybe we could sing a song, it wouldn't be so romantic, but about buying a car. You know, you you buy a new car, you research every detail of this car, you check it all over, you you, want to make totally sure it's a well-built and reliable model then you drive it away from the dealership, and as soon as it leaves the dealership, the engine explodes. What should be done to that car? You go straight back to the dealer, don't you? Probably with a little bit of heat in your heart. Or you break, you break an, an, an egg into a hot frying pan, but it's a rotten egg, and the whole house is filled with a stench. You get rid of the egg as quickly as possible. The vineyard song says, you are that car, you are that egg. But the complacency addressed in the passage is this complacency about sin. People have got lulled into careless danger because they don't really think their sin is a problem. Complacent about sin because they minimize God's goodness, think their sin is excusable and aren't concerned about judgment. So at this point we want to ask, how does that challenge meet us this morning? And let me, let me ask you, please, please answer this honestly in your heart. Is sin a problem for you personally? Is sin a problem for you? If it's not, you might have been lulled into spiritual complacency. John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. The Bible calls us to arms daily, to, be, to have a constant vigilance. The Bible warns us that our enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We have to, to watch and pray that we don't fall into temptation. We must be constantly on guard. And yet so easy it is to just make light of our own sin. We might make much of others, but our own. It's so easy to be worried and concerned about so many things, but none of the things we're worried and concerned about is the sin in here. So easy for us to get agitated by, by all, all these things going on around us, but we are indifferent to our sin. Does that catch us at all? Now, I guess when we get to the end of verse 7, we want to say, well, what now? Now, if the song has worked and shaken the complacent, what should they do? 
Isaiah 5 is not a hopeful chapter. We'll see more of it next time, but it's going to end by saying there is only darkness and distress. It's not a hopeful chapter. There is some hope, but it's not the last chapter. It's not the last time we hear about a vineyard in Isaiah. Um, When we get to Isaiah 27... Uh, We see a brilliant counterpart to this vineyard song, the kind of polar opposite of it. Um, You see, God didn't make the world with sin. He won't leave the world with sin. And Isaiah 27 sets out this beautiful vision of the future of an eternal vine where the whole of creation is lived in the happiness of God. We'll get to Isaiah 27 one day. Um, There's hope that it's not the last chapter. There's also hope that the chapter is here. There's hope. That God confronts people with their sin. He could have said nothing. That would not be unfair. He could have just carried out the judgment. A bit like when Jonah goes to Nineveh and preaches only judgment on their sin. And the people hear and they repent and they cry to God for mercy. So the message of judgment becomes a means of grace. Or like when Nathan the prophet goes to David and confronts him about his sin. And David responds and says, I have sinned against the Lord. There's no excuses. Just simple confession. And then he writes Psalm 51 at that time. Which begins, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I guess the complacent don't think much of those words. For the complacent, this is too easy. It's too obvious. The complacent aren't startled by how these words draw deeply on fathomless drafts of grace. Now these words counter the complacency in our passage. Drawing deeply on the goodness of God, making no excuse for sin, recognizing the reality of God's judgment and the need to be cleansed. We read Isaiah 5 after Isaiah 4, which we saw last time, speaks about how the Lord will wash away the filth and cleanse the bloodstains with the spirit of judgment fire. And we read on in the Bible and we see that when the Lord Jesus came, John says, in him we receive grace upon grace. The grace of creation followed by the grace of redemption. God created the world, a vineyard. Out of the abundance of goodness and grace, and we have all turned and we've all sinned and produced stink fruit, and and we must be removed. But then came grace upon grace. God sent his son into the world, and the Lord Jesus Christ says in John 15, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. And we messed up our chance to be the vine, we spoiled our fruit. But then the true vine came, and he produced pure fruit always. And he shed his blood to wash away our filth. Poured out his life to cleanse us thoroughly. And lives to share his life with us today. He is the true vine. We can't produce any fruit without him. But he invites us to be with him. And for him to be with us. So that we can be part of the eternal vine in the endless happiness of God. So Jesus says, remain in me. As I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. 
Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I guess when it comes down to it, the complacent don't really think they need Jesus. I wonder if you do. Let's just have a moment to ask. Ask yourself, how much do I need Jesus?